Hello, this is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and the director of the Burns Center at Vanderbilt University. Today, the topic that we're going to talk about is smoke inhalation, carbon monoxide poisoning, and cyanide poisoning. Um, as somebody who works and, and runs a burn unit on a, on a daily basis, we're faced with the challenges of what happens to patients uh, following exposure to smoke. Uh, you may not work in a burn center, but you certainly may um, come in contact with patients uh, uh, who present to the emergency department with smoke inhalation, uh, may not have any burns, and then the question is, then what do we do with this patient since they don't have burns? Um, we probably don't need to send them to a burn center. That's not the truth. Um, you probably do need to send them to a burn center. The people who uh, deal with these injuries, the, the inhalation injury, on a routine basis. But let's talk about why this is such a dangerous injury. What's some of the pathophysiology involved, and what are some of the new and emerging treatments, and, and what are some of the roles, uh, the role of uh, some of the older treatments? When you think about smoke and smoke inhalation, you have to uh, be mindful that uh, smoke is, is nothing more than products of uh, incomplete combustion. And, and when you're uh, involved in a structure fire or a car fire, that you're really inhaling some very dangerous uh, uh, particulate matter. Be mindful that smoke inhalation is a more common source of fire-related mortality than the actual burns themselves. And, and the presence or absence of smoke inhalation is a greater predictor of whether somebody's going to live or die in a patient who has a burn than the size of the burns or the, or the uh, age of the patient. Let's say that again. That if you have a, a inhalation of smoke, that is going to be more predictive of whether a patient will live or die than the size of the burn, whether they have a 20% burn, a 50% burn, or a 70% burn. That is going to predict whether they live or die as much as whether they have inhaled smoke. The inhalation of smoke is responsible for approximately 4,000 deaths annually in the United States and over 20,000 injuries annually in the United States, including roughly about 5,000 firefighters, uh, people who are uh, injured by inhalation of smoke. The deaths from smoke inhalation outnumber the deaths from burn injury. Well, what makes this smoke so dangerous? Well, we have really what we call particulates, uh, irritants, and asphyxiants or toxins. Now, the particulates are dust and soot. The irritants are chemicals like hydrochloric acid, sulfur dioxide, oxides of nitrogen, and ammonia. Uh, the asphyxiants include things like carbon dioxide, hydrogen cyanide, carbon oxide, and hydrogen sulfide. You're thinking, good grief, where is all this stuff coming from? A structure fire if I catch my apartment on fire? Well, the reality is is that when you, uh, if you look around your house or your office, we really live in a, a world filled with plastics and chemicals, and when, you, when a bed or a bedspread catches on fire, it has synthetic materials in there that, when burned, produce very toxic fumes. The same can be said about the polyurethane foams of chairs and some of the vinyls. Now, who should we be suspicious for having an uh, inhalation injury? Anybody who's involved in a fire in a confined space, they may present confused or agitated, and they could have burns of the face or chest, singeing of the eyebrows or nasal hairs, soot in the sputum, or patients who have hoarseness, loss of voice, or stridor. One thing that you can typically ask patients to do is ask them if they can swallow their own spit, and they look at you like you're crazy, like, well, what kind of question is that? They're probably going to be okay. But if they're looking at you with a look of anxiety and say, no, I really have to think about you know, handling my secretions and swallowing my spit, then that's somebody you need to be uh, uh, concerned about. Depending on the nature of your practice, you may have had the uh, 
pleasure or displeasure of caring for a child who has epiglottitis. And you know that that appearance of a child kind of leaning forward, drooling, actively controlling their airway is, a, is an appearance that you will see somebody who has a lot of swelling of their upper airway from a smoke inhalation. Another appearance would be somebody who has um, Ludwig's angina or, or something that's a, a swelling of the face from a soft tissue infection. Again, somebody who's actively having to manage their own airway is what these patients will look like. Now, when we talk about the asphyxiants, carbon monoxide uh, is the most common cause of death from acute poisoning. It's generated from incomplete combustion of carbon-containing products. Well, what has carbon? Well, basically, everything that's organic. Well, I thought carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide are these horrible uh, chemicals that are polluting the environment. Well, the reality is, is they come from organic sources, and when they burn, they release carbon monoxide. The carbon monoxide is responsible for most of the fatalities from fires, and you can see it also from stoves, portable heaters, automobile exhaust, and it's really caused about a third of the deaths. We've already said what are these the, the, the a patient with carbon monoxide poisoning going to appear like. They could have severe poisoning, which will present as acute loss of consciousness, seizures, coma, hypotension, and even cardiac arrest. Patients who have mild to moderate carbon monoxide poisoning could have malaise, kind of a general malaise or flu-like symptoms, headache, confusion, lethargy, a little bit of uh, dyspnea on exertion, maybe even nausea and vomiting, and in some cases even diarrhea. The physical exam is not very reliable. It's going to be highly variable. Uh, and signs and symptoms, again, as you see from above, are not very specific. These, you know, somebody's a nauseous and vomited. They have traumatic brain injury, something fall on their head, lethargy. Uh, a lot of, you know, I, a lot of these patients surprisingly are intoxicated uh, when they uh, come in burned. And the other uh, asphyxiant is uh, cyanide, which we're going to talk about uh, a little bit in a few minutes. The three elements of ventilation and drain, and I want to go back and, and cover this, and I didn't uh, I kind of skipped over this, is that you have thermal injury, asphyxiation, and toxic-induced lung injury. And I think what people typically think of somebody who gets pulled out of a fire and they have an airway is that they've burned their airway. And certainly the upper airway, up to about the level of the vocal cords, um, you can have some heat-related injuries. The things you need to really discern is dry air from a structure fire versus steam. Dry air is a very poor conductor of heat, or steam is a very good conductor of heat. And it's really rare that when somebody is burned with dry air that they have thermal injury or burns below the level of the vocal cords. If you were to inhale air, uh, and this is um, data from Mort's American Journal of Pathology back in 1945, um, so it's, you know, again, we're talking about things that are uh, over 50 years old, but if you take air that's 300 degrees centigrade, uh, it is cooled to roughly 50 degrees by the time air reaches the larynx. Well, the reason for this is that our upper nasal pharynx is a very effective heat exchanger. It is able to effectively cool air in a reasonably short distance. Now, changing this scenario, if you're walking down Michigan Avenue in January and it's 20 degrees, by default you would not say that the air that is reaching your lungs is 20 degrees. Because you know that when you exhale, you get this warm, uh, you can see your breath. And the reason why you can see your breath is because it's warm and it's been expelled into a cold environment. Well, how did it get warm? Well, it got warm in a short distance of your nasopharynx. It's a very effective heat exchanger, so therefore it's able to warm the air that you inhale 
inhale on a cold day, and when you're in a structured fire, it's able to cool the air very effectively. The other thing that happens is that when you're in a hot environment in a structured fire, the vocal cords will reflexively adduct at about 150 degrees. The, the vocal cords really slam together, uh, kind of protecting uh, the lower airways on inspiration. Now, we said that there is a difference between steam and uh, uh, dry air, and that steam has roughly 4,000 times the heat carrying capacity of dry air. And you'll remember some of these problems from undergraduate chemistry when looking at the heat carrying capacity of, of various chemicals and solids. 4,000 times the heat carrying capacity. So if you inhale steam, urine going to be you're going to be in big trouble. Now getting back to the asphyxiants, the asphyxiants is really two that we focus on. We already talked a little bit about carbon monoxide. The other is cyanide gas. Everybody's pretty much attuned to carbon monoxide, but cyanide gas is the one that's really um, um, gets ignored, uh, and that uh, either active ignoring cyanide toxicity or just not being aware that cyanide toxicity is a problem uh, is really responsible for a lot of morbidity and even death uh, from uh, smoke inhalation. And we've presented some of the signs and symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning already. Carbon monoxide reversibly displaces oxygen from the hemoglobin and it creates carboxyhemoglobin. Now, if you get a carboxyhemoglobin level on somebody and they're a smoker or a truck driver or work as a diesel mechanic, they may have a CO level of, say, 5 or 10 percent, and that could be their baseline. Uh, carbon monoxide interacts with the mitochondria, um, mitochondrial AA3, which is used for mitochondrial energetics. And you'll remember from ninth grade biology that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. So if there were poisoning uh, cytochromes of the mitochondria, well then you can only imagine what that does to the ability of the cell to create energy. Cardiac, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, carbon monoxide also binds with cardiac myoglobin. Now, if somebody has a CO level of less than 60, which is really very high, the carbon monoxide level doesn't really predict what patients are going to live or die. If somebody comes to you and they have a CO level of 40 um, and somebody else has a CO level of 20, is can you go and tell the family or your consultants, well, this person's got a CO level of 20. Statistically, they're going to do better than the CO level of 40. That doesn't apply. You're either CO toxic or you're not. And the magnitude of the toxicity, below levels of 60%, do not predict survival. Now, when we talk about carbon monoxide poisoning from a structure fire, we need to distinguish that from carbon monoxide poisoning that somebody may get from a bad car exhaust or a bad uh, furnace in their house. When you think about somebody who has a bad car exhaust and they're, they're sitting in their car with their car running, uh, some teenage kids doing what teenage kids do in parked cars, um, or somebody has a bad furnace in their house and it's producing large, large carbon monoxide, when they come in carbon monoxide toxic, they have one injury, uh, and that is carbon monoxide toxicity. When somebody comes in from a structure fire and they have an elevated CO level, they have a multi-system injury in regards to their inhalation injury. There are several things going on, and we're going to explain this. Let's change gears a little bit and imagine somebody comes into your hospital or your emergency room and they're complaining of chest pain. Somebody's 55, 56 years old, they're a little bit of a, they have a lot of obesity, they're hypertensive, and they're clutching their chest. Well, that will launch a certain sequence of events which are appropriate because this patient may be at risk for development of acute myocardial ischemia. The patient will get put on an oxygen, they'll get IV, uh, they'll probably get an aspirin almost immediately and given some nitroglycerin. Shortly thereafter, they may even get uh, a bolus of heparin. And all these will be done with minimal 
to no or minimal um, um, uh, laboratory or objective data because we know that in myocardial ischemia, time is cells. Now, let's change the scenario. So you have the same patient, 55-year-old, obese gentleman of the history of hypertension, clutching his chest, but he comes to you after... His, his family was in the car, and he said he was complaining of really bad chest pain. He said it was 10 out of 10, and he was driving the car, and he wrecked the car. And when he wrecked the car, he ran off the road, hit a telephone pole, clipped the pole, put his head through the windshield, and his mental status hasn't been really that great. Now, the question that I would ask then is, what do you do with that patient? Certainly, you bring him into the hospital, you give him an IV, you put O2 on him, and you put him on a monitor. But do you give that patient aspirin? Do you give them a nitrate? Do you rapidly heparinize them? No, you probably won't. And the reason why you won't is because you know this is a multi-system problem now. Because this guy here could have a traumatic brain injury. And he could have an epidural or subdural hematoma. And if I give this guy a platelet agent, antiplatelet agent, or if I anticoagulate him, he may bleed into his brain and aggravating his brain injury. And furthermore, if I give him a nitrate and I cause some vasodilatation, that will actually aggravate any increased intracranial pressure he may have from a traumatic brain injury, and that would be relatively or absolutely contraindicated. So the normal steps you would take for that chest pain, you wouldn't apply in a multi-system trauma patient who clearly has an MI. The same is true for smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide poisoning. Normally for carbon monoxide poisoning, people will launch a sequence of events, they'll slip the patient on oxygen, and they'll actually start talking about things like hyperbaric oxygen. And I would contend that the literature doesn't support putting a patient who has a complex smoke inhalation patient with concomitant carbon monoxide poisoning in a hyperbaric chamber. And we'll discuss that in more detail. Now, when you start treating a patient for carbon monoxide poisoning, well, they'll get treated immediately at the scene. As soon as they get pulled from the fire, anybody who's unconscious or altered mental status, regardless of the mechanism of injury, whether they've been in a burning building or fell down a flight of stairs, will get put on oxygen. And oxygen is the treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, when you have the carbon monoxide sitting on the hemoglobin, it creates this carboxyhemoglobin and it decreases oxygen delivery. It also binds to the cardiac myoglobin. We've already talked about the symptoms of headache, confusion, and coma. Now, how carbon monoxide is eliminated from the body is through the law of mass action. When somebody is, uh, has carbon monoxide in their blood, it has a half-life of roughly 250 minutes. It's about four hours. You put that patient on 100% oxygen by face mask, and some would argue that you really don't deliver 100% oxygen when somebody's on a face mask, or they're intubated, you take that half-life between 40 and 60 minutes. Now, putting somebody at three atmosphere and hyperbaric oxygen does decrease the half-life of carboxyhemoglobin. It takes it down to roughly 30 minutes compared to 40 to 60 minutes on 100% oxygen. Now, if you have a patient who's very critically ill from a burn or a complex smoke inhalation injury, most hyperbaric chambers are typically not at centers um, uh, where they may be a trauma center, may not be a trauma center. Typically, the, your biggest, baddest burn injuries occur between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m., not typically at a time where people who are using hyperbaric chambers are in the hospital. Um, and this isn't meant as any derogative type comment, but typically hyperbaric chambers are not considered to be in, in areas of the hospital where you're capable of providing a tremendous amount of critical care. There are multi-place chambers around the country that are very good at that, but clearly this is not the best environment to care for a critically ill patient. 
And typically the people who, uh, the technicians and the nurses who do uh, these kind of treatments are not in the hospital immediately available. These are all inherent delays. And first of all, I would contend that these are not good environments that you want to put a very sick patient in. You certainly don't want to put a patient in a monoplace chamber where you do not have direct access to the patient. And putting a patient in an environment uh, like a, mon- a multi-place chamber uh, is certainly a diff- more difficult environment to take care of a very sick patient. And what is the benefit that you're gaining? You're taking the half-life from 60 minutes to 30 minutes. Many of our patients have already come from an hour to an hour and a half away. And if they've been intubated the entire time, what is the the actual percentage that you're going to make on that carbon monoxide if we start treating it early on. What is the data for this? Well, there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine back in October 3rd of 2002. And based on that article, and again, I don't practice what I call a la carte evidence medicine. Don't say, well, this works, but then don't do it the way it was described in the study. Because once you start varying from the way that it was described in the study, you can't really use that data to support your actions. In that study, they provided three therapies in the first 24 hours. Well, if you've got somebody who's got a 50% burn, and you're trying to fluid resuscitate them, and you're treating the, the, the burn shock that goes with that, do you really want the patient in this therapy chamber for three times in the first 24 hours? This reduced the cognitive sequela. Okay, you get a cognitive impairment sometimes from carbon monoxide poisoning by 40, 46% at six weeks. Uh, those with impairment had moderate to severe impairment. 20% fell below the fifth percentile. 33% fell, uh, fell below the 16th percentile. Now, I'm not making light of a cognitive impairment, but our priorities in these patients are save their life, save their limbs, save their. F- um, say function and cosmetics we're taking care of a burnt patient when a patient comes in they're carbon monoxide poisoned they're cyanide poisoned they have a big bad burn they have a bad inhalation injury we are fighting for their life and I don't think that it is appropriate in my opinion based on the literature that has been published and presented that we are looking at preservation of cognitive functioning if the patient is dead they're going to be cognitively impaired that's 100% guaranteed. By taking these critically ill patients and putting them in a hyperbaric chamber, you are going to reduce the cognitive impairment of their ability to do these cognitive difficulties at four to six weeks by 46%. That is if you can keep these patients alive in the chamber. The therapeutic index doesn't equate to make that an appropriate treatment for these complex burn patients. Cyanide gas. Cyanide gas is a product of uh, a combustion of plastics and polyurethanes. Look around the room you're in. I guarantee there's some plastics and polyurethanes in there. Where there's smoke, there's hydrogen cyanide. People think that cyanide poisoning is something that you might see in a, a Bourne movie or a James Bond movie. No, it's something that you will see in your environment if it catches on fire. Well, how is cyanide toxic? Well, uh, cyanide binds to cytochrome AA3, which is the final step of oxidative phosphorylation. Now, let's go back and have a biochemistry flashback of how a cell gets its energy to sustain itself. A cell takes glucose and runs it through glycolysis. And then if there's oxygen available, um, the pyruvate then enters the Krebs cycle, also known as a citric acid cycle, and it spins around and then eventually exits and goes into oxidative phosphorylation, also known as electron transport chain. And it produces a net of 36 ATP. If cytochrome AA3 is poisoned by cytonine, the electron transport chain is not able to work. If the electron transport chain is not able to work, the Krebs cycle is not able to work. Therefore, glucose goes down to pyruvate. It can't get into the Krebs cycle. 
So it's got to go somewhere. So pyruvate then gets converted to lactate by pyruvate dehydrogenase. And what that does is when you metabolize glucose, you're making less energy. The cell cannot use oxygen, and glucose eventually gets converted to lactate. Therefore, you have anaerobic metabolism, you have excessive lactate production, and a metabolic acidosis. You have cellular asphyxia despite adequate arterial oxygen. These cells cannot breathe. They cannot use the oxygen that's been delivered to them. What is the patient's oxygen saturation? It's irrelevant because the cell can't use the oxygen. The oxygen saturation could be 100%, but it's not able to offload it to use it. Gauthier said we only see what we know, and the problem is not many people know about cyanide poisoning, and they don't know how to diagnose it or really suspect it, because you really can't make a diagnosis in acute condition. Well, let me draw a cyanide level. Great idea. You'll have a dead patient. What do we do about the patient who hits the door and have an acute myocardial ischemia? Let's get the EKG. That doesn't take too long, and I agree, it doesn't take too long. Let's get all of the labs before we decide to anticoagulate them. And you know what? Let's take them to the cath lab because before I give them the heparin, I want to really make sure that they're having a lesion. No, we don't do that because time is cells. Well, in this situation, time is cells too because the time that we are not doing anything about the cyanide, the cells aren't able to use oxygen. They may have an adequate saturation, but the cells are being deprived of oxygen. And you'll have a dead patient. What you could do is get an arterial blood gas. And if you have an arterial blood gas that has a good arterial sat, a good PO2, that's helpful. So you know that they, they don't have a problem with diffusion across their lung and they've got an adequate FiO2. But get a venous blood gas. And if you get a venous blood gas and they seem to have an inappropriately high venous saturation, that is potentially predictive of a problem. You could also get a lactate and they'll also uh, have an elevated uh, lactate level as well. F. Baud, B-A-U-D, published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1991. They looked at a correlation between plasma lactate and blood cyanide concentrations in 39 fire victims who didn't have any burns at all. And when you look at it, you see when they had a plasma lactate uh, greater than 10, there was a high likelihood the patient had a, an elevated cyanide level of greater than 1. Therefore, a plasma lactate in a smoke inhalation patient greater than 10 is highly suggestive of cyanide poisoning in the smoke inhalation patient. Now, cardiac arrest increases the lactate, but also the likelihood cyanide poisoning is present. Do not delay in treatment of cyanide poisoning uh, for a measure to get in a measured lactate if you suspect that somebody has cyanide poisoning. We talked about the arterial venous blood gases. An anion gap is directly related to lactate and blood cyanide levels and blood glucose levels. If you look at the cyanide poison patients, they had a median blood glucose level uh, in a boron paper in Annals of Emergency Medicine. That those who were cyanide toxic had a median blood sugar of 225 milligrams per deciliter, and those who weren't toxic had a median glucose level of 148. Some people like to correlate carbon monoxide, and I like to do that myself. If somebody's got an elevated CO level of, say, 15 or 20, uh, what I call a corrected carboxyhemoglobin, I will consider that uh, um, uh, somebody who is clearly cyanide at risk. Uh, if somebody has a cyanide level at my hospital of, say, 20 when they arrived and they got pulled from a fire an hour ago, and been inhibited the whole time, well, keep in mind that we said that the half-life of carbon monoxide on somebody on 100% oxygen by endotracheal intubation is roughly an hour. So if they get to me an hour later and they have a CO level of 20, well, then the CO level they got time pulled from the fire is 40. And it's clearly suggestive of somebody who probably is cyanide toxic.
Now, I've been told that you probably shouldn't rely on this too heavily because what can happen is the patients can get knocked down by the cyanide faster than they can the carbon monoxide. So what will happen is, is that somebody will get their cyanide levels arise very quickly. They'll stop breathing prior to a, a, a real escalation of the carbon monoxide. So they could be very cyanide toxic with a, low, uh, a lower carbon monoxide level. So we're making this diagnosis empirically. Failure to suspect it will result in patients with poor outcome because we're suffocating their brain, or even worse, a dead patient. How do we treat cyanide poisoning? Well, in the past, we had a three-stage um, kit who's really gone through a multiple of uh, kit names. We call it the Lily Kit. Uh, it's called by it, but it's basically a three-element kit that induces a state of methemoglobinemia. Now, methemoglobin, what that does is it binds the cyanide, uh, and keeps it a little bit out of the system, and it allows time for your um, uh, liver to metabolize it. So you create this methemoglobin, and the cyanide then slowly dissociates it, and the cyanide is then detoxified by hepatic ronidase. And you give sodium thiosulfate not as an antidote, but it, it's a cofactor of, uh, used by the hepatic ronidase. Now, some people will say, well, I'm afraid to give the amyl nitrate and the nitrates to induce the methemoglobin level, but I'm going to give the sodium thiosulfate. Well, that's not the way that kit was designed. And what that does is this, when you're giving the sodium thiosulfate, you're just making sure that you have enough sulfur moiety there to act as a cofactor for hepatic ronidase. You're not accelerating, um, you are not accelerating the detoxification of cyanide. Now, if somebody comes to your emergency room and, uh, I don't know, somebody puts some cetacane spray to, to do some laryngoscopy or some sort of oral surgery in their mouth, and they have many hemoglobinemia, they're probably going to get admitted to the intensive care unit because that's a, a poisoning. So when we use the, the cyanide antidote kit, we are intentionally poisoning the patient. Now, as we've said, most of these patients have carbon monoxide poisoning with them. So if they've got a CO level of 15 or 20%, what does that mean? Well, it means if you've got 100 hemoglobin molecules, 15 or 20% of them have a carboxyhemoglobin molecule sitting on them. That's not a very healthy situation. So now, let's take this patient who already has, let's call it a hypoxic blood, and now let's take this patient and make, give them a hemoglobinopathy abnormal hemoglobin, such that the hemoglobin doesn't bind well with oxygen. Let's make the overall condition worse. And, and really, carbon monoxide poisoning is a, is a uh, relative contraindication to treatment with a three-stage cyanide antidote kit. And you have to be very careful. That the, some people would say that you don't want the sum of your carbon monoxide poisoning and your met hemoglobin uh, level to get above 30 because then what you're doing is you're depriving the patient of too much oxygen. So in somebody who's got that complex injury that I talked about earlier, both the carbon monoxide and the cyanide, not a pathway you want to go. In Europe, they've had a kit um, um, available to them um, which basically results in cyanide chelation. Uh, and it's using a molecule, hydroxocobalamin. Now, hydroxocobalamin may sound familiar to you. It works very rapidly to bind the cyanide ion, and it really forms cyanocobalamin, um, which is very similar to vitamin B12. It's safe in, in retrospective cases as well as prospective clinical trials, and it's been used in Europe for over 10 years. It has a positive effect in the event of hypotension because most antidotes seem to cause hypotension. This drug actually creates a little bit of hypertension. 
This has a very safe therapeutic index. Now, what is therapeutic index? Remember that each drug has a relative benefit to the patient in contrast to the, the relative side effects. Keep it in mind that when you have somebody who suspected cyanide poison, they may have a hypoxic brain. The previous antidotes we've had have been very, very dangerous, and therefore our threshold for using the cyanide antidote has been very high. It's been something that typically I've made sure that I, as an attending, have administered myself uh, or have been in very close communications with a critical care fellow administering it because you can actually harm or kill a patient by giving this antidote. Keep in mind, the, the traditional, the three-stage antidote, we're intentionally poisoning the patient. The new antidote, being really just very concentrated vitamin B that you would use for pernicious anemia, is very, very safe. And therefore, the benefit of administration to the patient greatly outweighs the risks, which means as it's safer, we should have a different threshold for administration. If time is brain cells, if you pull a patient from a fire, what would you do? Would you give them oxygen? Would you consider an endotracheal tube an appropriate and essential piece of information? Well, of course you would. Since you would give somebody an endotracheal tube, what's the point of inhibiting them, giving them oxygen, if their cells are hypoxic and they're asphyxiated? People can be asphyxiated by somebody putting a pillow over their head. They can be asphyxiated because their tongue uh, is uh, occluding their airway from a neurological insult, creating an obstructed airway. They could be asphyxiated because they have a traumatic brain injury and their brain isn't telling them to breathe. They can be breathing and you could be breathing for them, but if their cells are poisoned, they're still asphyxiated. And the end result is that cells die, be they heart cells, kidney cells, or brain cells. It is discordant to support somebody's airway and to tracheally intubate them. Um, for their respiratory failure, but not consider their asphyxiation with cyanide. Now, when you give this kit uh, for cyanide, it's only been proven in adults for the United States, but um, yeah, basically it comes in two and a half gram vials, and you reconstitute these, uh, and you typically give five grams uh, as a dose. You can readminister a second dose if you suspect the patient's still cyanide toxic, and typically you give these uh, doses very slowly over about 15 minutes. Um, Really, there's this uh, cyanide hydroxycobalamin is a precursor of B12, uh, and when you give it, it's it's um, has a reddish color to it, and it'll actually the patient will appear red. Now that'll create some problems with laboratory testing, uh, and we'll discuss that. As I've said, it's been used in France for over 10 years, and it's received its FDA approval in 2006. You may see a, a transient increase in blood pressure, and this is totally appropriate, totally appropriate to be used in the pre-hospital setting. Again. If patient cells are dying from asphyxiation, we want this drug to be administered as close to the patient as we possibly can. As soon as we can get this patient, uh, as soon as we would consider giving this patient oxygen, at the same time we would be consider giving this patient a cyanide antidote. Born and colleagues um, looked at a five-year prospective observational study of smoke inhalation patients who had soot in, um, uh, in their mouth and sputum. They excluded patients with large burns to keep that as not as a, a variable. And they had 69 patients, of which 37% of them had a coma uh, and 14% had cardiac arrest. 73% of the patients survived, of whom 82% had no neurological sequela. Cyanide poisoning was confirmed in 61% of the patients. There were no serious adverse effects. So we got the patient through um, 
the temperature issues, we've talked about that. We secured their airways. We've talked about the carbon monoxide and the cyanide poisoning. And then there comes this third phase, this delayed toxic lung injury. And delayed toxic lung injury is if we get through those first two hurdles, this is a, another big hurdle to clear, is that the patients, you get them to the hospital, you detoxify them for the cyanide, and now you're in what we call this honeymoon period. And this honeymoon period can last typically about 48 hours. Sometimes it's a little bit longer. Sometimes it's a little bit shorter, depending on the magnitude of the inhalation injury. And what happens is the particles of smoke settle in on the uh, mucosa uh, of the trachea and bronchial tree. And then and the, our particles of the smoke are poisonous. What they do is they result in basically a sloughing of the lining of the lung. And that creates a lot of debris, which goes down into the lungs. Now, when you think about the way your lung is normally designed, you've got lining your trachea, you've got hair cells or cilia, uh, which on top of those have a blanket of mucus, and it's called the mucociliary escalator. And under normal conditions, as you inhale debris, it gets caught on that mucociliary escalator, much like flypaper. And through the course of the day, it, that escalator moves that snotty slime up out of your lungs where you, <coughs> you clear your throat, and then basically you know where it goes from there. You swallow it and it goes into your GI tract. Well, when you have a, a delayed toxic lung injury, you start to slough the lining of the trachea, the bronchial tree, and you lose your mucociliary escalator. Well, all this debris then goes down into the lungs. This creates a condition called bronchorrhea. You know what diarrhea is? Bronchorrhea is diarrhea of the lungs. That You get this slough uh, going down, creating this condition of retrograde bronchorrhea. Clearly, this is problematic because you can't clear your secretions. You've got this debris, and it sets patients up for pneumonia. Now, what to the inexperienced provider early on will say, I don't want to give this patient too much fluids because I want to protect their lungs. You're not protecting their lungs by not giving them fluid. Typically, patients who have inhalation injuries will require significantly more fluid than just on their thermal injury. You need to resuscitate these patients properly. You give them exactly the fluid they need, no more, no less. But do not be fooled thinking that you're, you need to get these patients less fluid. Unfortunately, they require more. There was a study done by Desai back in the late 90s where they uh, actually looked at burned children and they gave them heparin and, and mucamus as an inhalation therapy. We'll typically do this in our burn unit. And heparin is a very good anti-inflammatory drug. Mucamus is an antioxidant. And we run this, for, this protocol for several days for the anti-inflammatory effects of heparin and the mucolit, not the mucolytic products of mucamus, but the antioxidant problems. We use a special type of ventilator, uh, also called a VDR, and it's interesting is that when we use our heparin mucamus protocol and other people are using this VDR ventilator around the hospital, they think, oh, well, we have to use the heparin mucamus protocol as well, not recognizing that heparin isn't acting as an anticoagulant of the lung and uh, mu the mucamus is not being used as a mucolytic. And that references Desai and colleagues uh, in the Journal of Burn Care and Rehab, and that was done at um, the burn unit in Galveston. The other interesting therapeutic tool that we will use for smoke inhalation patients is a special type of ventilator called a VDR. It's a volume diffusive respirator. It's a mode of high frequency ventilation. And what it does is it's, um, it, it's a wonderful ventilator. Um, works very well on smoke inhalation patients. It's very technician dependent, uh, meaning that you really need to know what you're doing to run this ventilator. If you know what you're 
doing, you can make the ventilator set up and deal cards. But it's a it's a um, very technically challenging mode of ventilation to the naive um, provider, but it works very well in providing adequate oxygen and ventilation to very sick patients, but it also assists with the, bron- the uh, pulmonary toilet because with the large amount of bronchorrhea that these patients have, the secretions are hugely problematic. How do we diagnose smoke inhalation when a patient typically comes to the hospital, um, uh, to the burn unit? We'll typically do bronchoscopy. And if we're seeing soot, uh, um, uh, that's pretty much pathognomonic that the patient has um, a smoke inhalation injury. There have been histological studies that have correlated uh, biopsies of the mucosa uh, uh, with the presence of uh, soot debris below the vocal cords. You don't need to be doing biopsies. If they've got soot below the vocal cords, they have an inhalation injury. And like I said, somebody may look okay on a mission, but keep in mind that they may have a honeymoon period of 24 to 48 hours, and then it's all going to break loose. And then once it starts to break loose, the nurses will report a lot of what we call pond water secretions. patient comes to your hospital, your emergency room, your intensive care unit, and they were in a structure fire. And you, you did all of this right. You, you suspect the carbon dioxide poisoning, and you treated them for cyanide, and you've got them in your ICU on a ventilator, but they don't have a single burn on them. And you say, do I really need to send this patient to a burn unit? Now, clearly, I'm biased. I, I run a burn unit. I'm a critical care physician, and I think that I provide. A, a good level of care to patient and, and should you transport this patient to your regional burn center I would say yes and the reason why I would say yes is that these patients are really low probability patients for you having a lot of experience with them this is a very deadly condition if you were having your mitral valve replaced you would seek out a surgeon who has a large experience of mitral valve replacements and you would say, how many have you done? The same thing if you're having a transplant, you would go to a center who has a large volume of experience. This is a condition that is very deadly, very dangerous, requires unique modes of ventilation, and I would opine that you will get better outcomes from somebody who has a large volume of experience with this particular disease. You would be fair to ask me, do you have data to support that? And I would have to be intellectually honest with you and say, I don't have prospective randomized data to show that if we took 100, pa- burn, 100 patients with inhalation injuries um, and gave them to a unit who didn't have any experience taking care of them versus put them in a unit where they're used to taking care of 600 critically injured burn patients a year, that you're going to have a better outcome. We don't have that prospective data to make that decision. I would then point you to the Cochrane database and say, show me the data that pulse oximetry improves outcomes and I wouldn't find it. I would also say, well, let's look at things about women between the ages of 50 and 69 years of age, and what is the, the, the level one data that these women need uh, annual mammography? And the Cochrane would say, probably not, where the National Cancer Institute would say, you probably need to get an annual mammogram. So I'm not going to be intellectually dishonest with you and say that we have good level one data to support that. We just don't. That concludes this podcast. If you're a resident or fellow at Vanderbilt, you probably want me to give a talk on the VDR because it's a ventilator that drives you crazy if you don't know a whole lot about it. And you're probably right. We do need to do a podcast on that. Um, my uh, website is www.burndoc.com. Uh, we have several articles uh, on a variety of these topics that you can get there. You can uh, link to my email to send me a message. And I appreciate you listening. This is Jeff Guy. Have a good night.